From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. School shootings are terrifying. Yet suicide by gun is a far greater threat to young people. Emergency physician Dr. Emmy Betts of the University of Colorado wants more families to talk about that. Betts is also a champion for safe storage of firearms, given how often parents' weapons are involved in children's deaths. Then the tug of war between Colorado Springs and Huntsville, Alabama over U.S. Space Command. Findings from a federal watchdog give Colorado leaders some hope. I have every confidence that the command will stay in Colorado Springs. Later, in women's golf, a reckoning over equal pay. Okay, I am worth this. My game is worth this. How a Colorado tournament this week puts men and women on equal cleats. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. President Biden addressed the nation Thursday evening. He wants a federal ban on assault-style weapons, or at least to raise the minimum age to purchase them from 18 to 21. According to new data just released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer. More than car accidents. More than cancer. While mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo were top of mind, another important part of the conversation about protecting kids is suicide, which emergency physician Emmy Betts hopes families will not overlook. Dr. Betts is also an epidemiologist at CU Anschutz, specializing in injury prevention. And doctor, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So first off, I I know that you as a parent share in the fears around attacks at school. In fact, shortly after Uvalde, the issue hit pretty close to home, I understand. Absolutely. So, I mean, I have a fourth grader, so Uvalde felt very, uh, this had a very visceral reaction to it. Uh, and then I have relatives and lots of friends' kids who go to Northfield High School, uh, which had a SWAT team response to an, a, a potential active shooter. It turned out to, to not be anything, but was certainly a really scary way to end the school year for those uh, high schoolers. And then I have to think that Tulsa might weigh on you as someone who spends time at a hospital. I, I mean, absolutely. Lots we still don't know, I think. But the fact that a physician was targeted uh, by a patient is, is certainly scary for all of us who work in healthcare. But let's get some of the context here. Help us understand the data around firearms, mostly being turned on oneself. Right. So it's a normal, I think, response to be frightened by mass shootings and to be angry about the violence we see in our community and we all want to feel safe. I think it's also important, though, that we take a step back to look at the bigger picture. And particularly in Colorado, we know that the vast majority of firearm deaths in our state are due to suicide. For all ages, it's about 71% of firearm deaths in our state are suicides. And those deaths are also preventable. Um, Those are also families who are grieving. And and there's something that we can be doing something about today. 
So 71%, that's all ages, Dr. Mm-hmm. Betts? That's all ages. Can we say specifically how suicide affects young people uh, when firearms are in the picture? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is where it's hard, and I recognize as a parent, I also don't want to think that my kids would ever hurt themselves. No parent wants to think that. Um, but, you know, we, we talk about sex. We talk about drugs. We've got to talk about mental health and suicide risk with our youth. Um We know that uh, among youth in Colorado, uh, ages uh, 15 to 19 last year, uh, about uh, 52%, about half of all gun deaths were uh, suicides. So, and then the 20 to 24 year old range is about 60, 65%. So again, if we think about our youth in Colorado who are dying from firearm injuries, at least half of those are suicides. and they have to be part of the conversation because because the issues are so linked. I wonder if parents are afraid to bring up suicide because they feel like they're planting an idea. Great question. And that's the number one sort of myth we need to dispel. Okay. It's always okay to ask someone directly about suicide, whether it's a kid or an adult. It's okay to say, have you had thoughts about hurting yourself? Have you had thoughts about killing yourself? It won't make them do it. And in many cases, it can um, it can really open up a conversation and help someone get help. You say that with a lot of confidence. It won't make them do that. Is, is there research about those messages? Yeah. So there is research on that. And I think this is one of the sort of core components of suicide prevention efforts in this country is that it's okay for us to have these conversations and to ask directly. Um, the words don't matter as much as, as being there and, and showing you care and then getting per- somebody connected to the help that they need. If you or someone you know is struggling, there is someone who can help at Colorado Crisis Services. That hotline is free and professional. Their number is one eight four 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 nine three talk one eight four 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 nine three talk or this might be a bit easier you can text talk to three eight two five five text talk to three eight two five five what do we know about the guns that young people use when right. they complete suicide right so it's important that we talk about the gun and it's linked to suicide not because the gun makes someone do something but because it's incredibly lethal. So among youth who die by suicide, who use a firearm, it's almost always a parent's gun at home. And so- Their their parents? Their parents. Uh Mm -hmm. And so that's where it's important for firearm owners to recognize the importance of of secure storage. And again, it's it's not that the presence of a gun makes an otherwise happy kid suddenly think about suicide. It's that in that moment, if they reach for a gun, there's not going to be a second chance. There's no chance for them to call 911 to regret what they've done. That's very different than other suicide methods. Hmm. Guns are lethal. Correct. Correct. You mentioned safe storage. So, by the way, did the president in his remarks last night, I I think he made reference to maybe safe storage laws. Are there laws that are needed in this arena? Uh, Great question. So first I want to clarify what I mean when I say safe storage. Yeah. So when I'm talking about particularly youth and risk of suicide, I'm talking about making sure that youth in those homes don't have access to guns. A parent may still want a gun that is quickly accessible for the parent if they want it for protection. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to recognize that people will choose different storage options depending on what their family needs. But it's really about making sure that unauthorized users don't have access to the guns. And in my opinion, that should include all kids up through teenagers because of the sort of impulsivity of teen brains. 
And L- let's talk about teen brains a bit because I do feel like um, a teen brain is different from an adult brain. And how does that affect behavior around suicide and around firearms in particular? Mm-hmm. Well, we know, even in adults, we know that many suicide attempts are impulsive in the sense that there's a short time from when someone decides to take action to actually taking action. So not impulsive like me at Target buying stuff in the aisle, like not that kind of out of the blue impulsivity, but just that there's a there's a relatively short window when someone might not be thinking clearly. And I think we we all know and remember probably that teenagers have that perhaps even more so than adults. Their brains are not fully formed. Mm -hmm. And when you add on the social pressures of adolescence these days, um, bullying, all of those things, I think it's easy to understand why a teen might have something happen and to them it really feels like the end of the world. Maybe it's a breakup, maybe it's something at school. They don't have the same maturity as an adult to be able to say things will be better tomorrow. And so that's where then if they have access to a gun at home, they could do something that is devastating and there's no way to come back from. What about asking the parents of your kids' friends, inquiring about other households? Is that important uh, if we look at the data? So, uh, yes, I, I think it's important when we think about that our kids, be they younger kids or teens, are in and out of lots of people's homes. And if we think about... And that may be increasing in the summer, by the way. For sure. And so, you know, as parents, we think about all kinds of things. Who's going to be there? Or supervision? or their dogs and allergies and pools? And sort of the other potential hazards you think about. Mm-hmm. And I think firearms need to be part of that. And it, it can be done in a non-judgmental way. It's not about... Um, judging a family for their choices. It's about saying, I want to make sure that my kid is going to be in a safe environment. Do you have any unlocked firearms in your home? Do you have any marijuana gummies in your home that I don't want my teen getting into and so forth? It's about part of that whole conversation. That whole conversation. Mm -hmm. We have focused indeed on suicide here, but I do want to note uh, the racial disparities that young black men are 11 times as likely as young white men to die by firearm homicide. So within young people, the picture really does vary uh, from household to household. Absolutely. And it's it, it requires different approaches for prevention. So when I'm talking about securely locking up family guns at home, that's more around suicide prevention. When we talk about youth, particularly youth of color who are at high risk of community violence, that's where we need more comprehensive violence intervention programs. It's not just about locking up a gun. Are pediatricians having this conversation? I think it varies. I think many are. And I think we as a healthcare community are getting better and better at having these conversations in ways that are nonjudgmental and likely to support parents instead of perhaps alienate some. Um, I do think there are some healthcare providers who are still perhaps nervous about how to do it. And um, I I hope that they will continue to gain confidence in in sharing these safety messages with families. Doctor, thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Emergency physician and injury prevention specialist, Dr. Emmy Betts of CU Anschutz. When we come back, the tug of war over U.S. Space Command. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krause is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. 
And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. A government watchdog finds significant shortfalls in the Pentagon's decision to relocate Space Command from Colorado Springs to Huntsville, Alabama. The report from the Government Accountability Office comes less than a month after the Defense Department found the Huntsville move, quote, reasonable. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce has been following this story for years. Hi, Dan. Hey, Ryan. Quite a saga indeed. First off, what is Space Command? Basically, let's think about it as it's kind of the central nervous system where the U.S. military, it tries to focus on maintaining its capabilities in space. So, you know, making sure our satellites aren't getting hacked or uh, attacked or whatever and say keeping track of uh, what capabilities our potential adversaries may have in space. And so Space Command, it used to exist in the 80s and 90s, and it was based in Colorado Springs at Peterson Air Force Base. Hmm. But the command was it was disbanded after 9-11 because the military was focusing more on counterterrorism efforts, uh, which are more on the ground. But in the last few years, with the rise of China and Russia and their space capabilities, the Trump administration decided, OK, Space Command, it should start back up. And they did that in 2019. So then the, the question becomes, where should it be based? And so the Pentagon says, well, let's put it at Peterson, where it used to be. And now it's called Peterson Space Force Base. Let's put it back there and do that on an interim basis. And in the meantime, we'll have cities from around the country sort of vie to be selected. Oh, my gosh. Kind of like when Amazon was publicly asking cities to bid for its second headquarters a few years back. That's a perfect comparison. It's totally like that. It was like a contest, really. And that that contest just it went on and on. And, you know, it it was totally restarted at one point in different cities were accusing either the military or the Trump administration of not playing fair with it all. And so at the end of the contest process, based on its criteria, Huntsville, Alabama came out on top. But then it turns out that top military brass at the Pentagon They took that and they changed it. And they said, before giving the decision to then-President Trump, they said, no, we don't want to do Huntsville. We think it should stay in Colorado Springs. But Donald Trump, as president at the time, he had final say. And he said, nope, we are going to move it to Huntsville, Alabama. And he did that in his final days in the White House. So when that happened, Colorado's congressional delegation was absolutely just furious. And they've been fighting hard ever since to keep the command in Colorado Springs, and they fought to get two federal investigations they figured would say that the whole thing was a big political sham. And so one investigation, it came from inside the Pentagon itself, the Defense Department's Inspector General, and then the other investigation was from the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office, That's the report that was released this week. So to these reports, I understand both Colorado and Alabama leaders can find reasons in them to argue for their state. Sort of. So the Department of Defense report, the first report, it looked at the process which determined Huntsville the winner of that sort of contest we mentioned. So that report said, based on that process, Alabama was chosen 
fairly. So the Alabama delegation goes, sweet, okay, sounds good. But then the second investigation, the one that was just released from the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, it says, yeah, well, Huntsville may have been fairly chosen in that process, but the process itself has, quote, significant shortfalls in its transparency and credibility. Transparency and credibility, which sounds like a win for Colorado, if that's the process that chose Alabama. Colorado's delegation is certainly saying it's a win, but it's not as if this report ever says anything like Space Command should stay in Colorado Springs. That's the best place for it. It never says anything like that. They poke holes in the process which chose Alabama, but that GAO report basically says the government should learn some lessons from this process in order to make future decisions like this one moving forward. Hmm. Uh, so that is not stopping Colorado's congressional delegation from thinking at least that this will help. So what, what are they saying? So they point to several criteria used in the basing process that were not taken into account. And a couple of really big ones, like how much money the federal government might save if they kept Space Command in Colorado. And another one, and this is the one that the delegation points to the most, is how long it would take the command to get up to what they call full operational capability if it moved to Alabama, which would take years longer than it would for Colorado. So I spoke with Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn, and he says that he thinks the flaws in that process are enough to call for fully revisiting the process. And for how to do that, Lamborn mentions two options. Well, uh, our two Democrat senators have an open door to go to the president, who's the, of, of the same party, obviously, and say that we need to revisit or overturn this decision. I can work within Congress, within pending legislation, to try to achieve the same thing. Okay, so the House and the Senate routes. Uh, what do Colorado's U.S. senators think of this? I spoke with Senator John Hickenlooper after Congressman Lamborn, and Hickenlooper, he dismissed that idea. He, he said, you know, we're not going to play politics with this decision. That's what we're saying happened in the first place with former President Trump. But then right after that, Senator Hickenlooper went on to sort of describe doing basically what Lamborn was talking about anyway. I think we need to sit down, make sure that we have the Joint Chiefs of Staff in a meeting with the president. And everybody gets to lay out their interpretation of the facts. They're all in these two reports. Take those facts and make the appropriate decision. And I have every confidence that the command will stay in Colorado Springs. There's a lot riding on this decision for Colorado, isn't there? Absolutely. So there aren't too many employees with Space Command, only about 1,400. But the Denver Metro Economic Development Corporation says those 1,400 employees making up Space Command will contribute about $1 billion to the Colorado economy. As the maneuvering, political maneuvering, continues at this point, an actual relocation of Space Command is not going to happen immediately, right? No, it will not. The soonest it would move from Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama, would be 2026. Dan, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce, who is following efforts to keep U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with women getting more green on the green.
I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. July 1887, Summit County. Two prospectors blast their way into a pocket of gold and pull out a massive nugget, 13 and a half pounds. To keep their bonanza safe, Tom Groves swaddles the rock in a blanket and holds it tenderly all the way back into town. Folks there called the chunk Tom's Baby, and it was boxed up, shipped to Denver, and disappeared. Generations later, a search leads to a bank vault in Denver with a dusty wooden crate labeled Dinosaur Bones. But inside, a shimmering mass of gold, Tom's Baby. What happened to those missing three and a half pounds of gold in the 80 years between sightings is a mystery. But Tom's Baby is still the largest piece of gold discovered in Colorado. Look for it in the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And in Breckenridge, look for a statue of Tom Groves in Prospector Park. And give the 13 and a half pound baby he's cradling a rub for good luck. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. In women's sports, prize money has lagged behind men's. The frustrating part and kind of sad reality is that you just get used to not making as much, not competing for as much money without really giving thought to what that means, what that speaks to about how people regard women's talent in any type of profession, professional sports. This is Savannah Vallabi, a professional golfer. So for me, it's like, oh, well, no, it's, it's normal for us to compete for less money because, well, that's the way it's always been. But if you look at it, it's like, well, why is that the case? This week, Vallabi is competing in the Colorado Women's Open in Denver. The event, held at the Green Valley Ranch Golf Club, has one of the highest winner's checks of any state open. Last year, Vallabi won the event, pocketing $50,000. Still, that was half as much as the winning man received. But this year, should Vallabi successfully defend her title, she, or whichever pro wins, will claim $100,000, the same as the men's champion. The tournament's new sponsor was a major force, Inspirado, a Denver-based luxury travel broker. Kevin Laura, CEO of the Colorado Open Golf Foundation, says the company is walking the walk. Monumental is probably not a big enough word. It's just the right thing to do, and it's just, it's hard to do because it's money. Uh, But when you find the right funding source that believes in that too, it's very easy. And Inspirato has 70% female associates. So the fact that they are 7 out of 10 employees are female, it was really exciting to their entire team to be supporting an event that also is the first in the world to make the purses equal in men and women. This shift isn't exclusive to golf. In February, the U.S. women's national soccer team, which consistently outplays their male counterparts, announced it had reached a $22 million settlement with the sports governing body, ending a 2016 class action lawsuit. That figure covers back pay. In May, it was announced that moving forward, the two soccer squads would be paid equally. Back to golf, the U.S. Women's Open, also buttressed by a new sponsor, healthcare company ProMedica, almost doubled its total prize money from $5.5 million to 10. That event is also happening this week in North Carolina. Savannah Vallabi says it's about time, but this has been a reckoning for her as well. When you have these big companies like Inspirato and ProMedica step up and kind of break that mold, it gets you thinking, and then you're like, okay, I am worth this. My game is worth this. Professional golfer Savannah Vallabi competes this week in the Inspirado Colorado Women's Open in Denver. She hopes to follow a similar career path to Jennifer Kupcho. The Westminster native won the same tournament in 2020 before joining the LPGA Tour. 
This March, Cupcho came out on top at the Chevron Championship, the first major championship of the 2022 season. Can cannabis transform exercise? As the stigma around marijuana lifts, more athletes are opening up about their own use. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse tells their story in his latest book, Runner's High. We spoke in January. Welcome to the show, Josiah. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. There is a stereotype that pot users are sedentary and, you know, like suffering the effects of the munchies. But that's really not borne out in the data, is it? No, it's not. And that's something that we're just now coming to understand with the legalization of cannabis. A lot more people who are more ambitious, uh, more in a mainstream career field or lifestyle are admitting that they use cannabis and have been for some time and like to incorporate it with physical activity. And there's been a number of polls uh, looking at that. One from Angela Bryan out of CU Boulder looking at the exercise habits of people living in legalized states. And she found that 80% of respondents were using cannabis before, during, or after their workout. And uh, she's also discovered that cannabis users have lower rates of diabetes, uh, obesity, and are just generally more fit than their sober counterparts. Did that come as a surprise to you? Not for me. Some of the data did, but I've been in the world of cannabis for a long time, reporting on it as a journalist, and then also just being in that world. And I knew that that stereotype was not representative of the people who used cannabis. Uh, It was representative of the people who were out about their use of cannabis. And these were typically people who had nothing to lose uh, from the world finding out that they use cannabis. They were you know, not bad people, but somewhat of, uh, you could say, dropouts of society. Uh, these aren't investment bankers. <laughs> um, but like I said, with legalization, people, you know, like investment bankers or soccer moms or firefighters or all sorts of highly active people are admitting that they use cannabis in a variety of contexts. Okay, you mentioned there something subtle, but you said that you're a journalist and you're also in that world. Uh, I think the implication being that you are both a reporter and a consumer of cannabis. That would be accurate. That would be accurate. Is that a tricky balance when you're writing reportage? Absolutely. I think every journalist has their bias, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you lean into that bias and make it your identity. I often try to immerse myself in the counterpoints of cannabis detractors and understand where they're coming from and what science they're citing and what their perspective on cannabis is, the threat of it to society, the threat of it to individuals, and really give them my full unbiased attention. At the end of the day, I disagree with them on a lot of points. I also end up agreeing with them on a lot of points. I think the cannabis industry has a lot of due criticism coming to it. I think cannabis can be used irresponsibly. I think a lot of the products that are out there aren't necessarily uh, the best way to manufacture cannabis or consume cannabis. So as a journalist, I think it would be unfair of me to say that cannabis is 100% good 100% of the time for 100% of the people. Josiah, you're a runner. 
Uh, one, I'll say, who hates treadmills. You'd rather be outside running. Uh, yet you did agree to jump on a treadmill to take part in a, quote, groundbreaking study of cannabis use during exercise. Uh, why don't you tell us more about the researcher? You've already mentioned her, psychologist Angela Bryan at CU Boulder. Say more about her and what she's trying to learn. Yeah, and she has a very fascinating story because she started researching the subject of cannabis somewhat as a detractor. She was looking at why people don't exercise uh, and what prevents them from exercising. And when legalization came on, she was concerned that this would lead to more sedentary behavior. Hmm. And the more she looked into it, the more she found that the opposite was true and just started digging deeper into the subject. And the research that she was doing, the study she was doing that I participated in, dovetailed with the sort of themes of my book, which, you know, in addition to all of the physiological benefits that we get from cannabis in terms of anti-inflammatories or reduced muscle spasticity or sleep, there's also a shift in perspective on exercise itself. Quite often, Americans view exercise as a discipline or even a punishment, as mm -hmm. we've seen in the military, something that you endure for some kind of end you know, like better health, better fitness, uh, being more attractive. But the research that she was doing and what my research seemed to be showing with people that I was speaking with anecdotally was that cannabis can make exercise more enjoyable, that beyond just uh, the reduction in pain, there's actually a boost in mood. And I don't want to say that this is the conclusions of her studies, but when I went and consumed cannabis and ran on the treadmill in her lab, they were asking a series of questions um, every five or 10 minutes as I was running on the treadmill. Uh, what is my mental state? You know, am I dissociating? Am I engaged? Am I enjoying this? And we did it once without cannabis and once with cannabis. And I could confirm then, as I could with a number of other experiences I've had as a runner, that it was just so much more enjoyable under the influence of cannabis, uh, a moderate dose of cannabis, I'll mm. add. Uh, that's very important when using it with exercise. But yeah, uh, just more in the moment, more uh, mind-body connection more pleasure for the act itself. Uh, even things like a little bit of pain or a little bit of exhaustion can be stimulating in that capacity because you're just so engaged with the activity itself. It's, it's not painful. It's quite lovely. And so do you think that sort of research, were it to continue, might be the catalyst for more Americans getting more exercise? I certainly hope so, because we all have the capacity to enjoy exercise. Evolution has given us this reward system for things like food when it comes to salt, fat, and sugar, uh, or sleep, or sex, or learning, you know, anything from academic research to just being on social media. You're getting information coming at you, and there's a little reward, a little dopamine boost, all sorts of different uh, neurochemistry going on there. But exercise should be in that category. And it's really unfortunate that we have this perspective of it as something that's just grueling because we have what's called an endogenous cannabinoid system. I know that's a, a lot to take on, but we all have uh, an endogenous opioid system through endorphins. And we get a what's called a runner's high mm -hmm. after a certain amount of cardiovascular activity. And that's a reduction in pain and an uplift in mood. Runners have been speaking about this for decades. And that's actually a cannabinoid, you know, not unlike THC or CBD, which are found in the plants. 
cannabis. It's a natural cannabinoid that's in our body that makes us feel really good after a certain amount of exercise. And cannabis has the potential to jumpstart that system, which seems to be dormant in a lot of people. People don't need to be incentivized to eat salt, fat, or sugar or to go to sleep. And that's something that people just naturally pursue without any outside incentives. So if people can engage with their cardiovascular system and endocannabinoid system, I believe cannabis can be a stimulant for that. If they can engage with that, they can just organically enjoy exercise without any sort of discipline or end result. Just enjoy it for the hedonistic pleasures of its own. The the notion that there are natural cannabinoids inherent to my body, it was just such a revelation when I read in depth about this in your book, Runner's High. And, you know, it just occurred to me that in school I'd learned about the endocrine system and the pulmonary system and heard diddly squat about natural, you know, onboard, inborn cannabinoids. Yeah, it's something that's uh, unfortunately been a taboo subject, even though it hasn't really been disputed. The National Institute of Health decades ago said that uh, the endocannabinoid system is involved in nearly all human diseases. And it's involved in almost all human bodily functions, appetite stimulation, uh, fertility, sleep, mood. There's almost nothing that goes on in our body that isn't influenced in one way or another by endogenous cannabinoids. And yet it was something that was taboo to study because A lot of scientists didn't want their careers defined by this topic because it was in some ways wrapped up in cannabis, which is interesting because studying endorphins, uh, nobody really thought like, oh, you must be into heroin if you're studying (laughs) endorphins. But uh, even though, you know, endorphins just means endogenous morphine. But for some reason, that was the case with the endocannabinoid system. There was a research, I believe, in 2013 that showed only 9% of medical schools were teaching the endocannabinoid system, which is insane considering the impact it has on all these different bodily functions. Now, that said, it has changed greatly since that survey was taken. And now it is a, a really blossoming field of science, one that's both independent of researching cannabis and one that's integrated with researching cannabis. And as we're sort of shedding the stigma of cannabis in general, hopefully that field of science will be embraced by all sorts of different people. In researching this book, you met a number of endurance athletes, many of them in Colorado, who integrate cannabis into their training. The highest profile might be ultra runner Avery Collins. You've mentioned the drug's anti-inflammatory properties, uh, its ability to reduce pain. Why does Avery Collins use cannabis? Well, he's certainly not an outlier in that respect, but he is the person I spent the most time with, the ultra runner I spent the most time with on this. And he talks about it in a very mystical way. He's not all that much of a new age woo-woo person, but he speaks of a, a just this pure bliss that comes over him when running. And he said the same thing that I hear from a lot of ultramarathon runners in that to do that job, you know, to run a 200 mile race through the mountains, you know, uh, there's a lot of numbers that come into play. You have to think about your pace, your heart rate, your calories, uh, your distance, your elevation, and you really have to have a very mathematical approach to that endeavor. 
but with cannabis, it can allow him to at least momentarily, particularly in training, I'll add that he doesn't use it in competition, but momentarily set all of that aside, all the ancillary chatter of being a professional athlete and just be immersed in the activity itself, really remind someone why they got into it in the first place. They're loving the trails, they're loving the trees, the sky, the, the feeling in their body of breathing hard, of working your muscles hard, the sort of meditative aspects of your feet, you know, in this consistent rhythm for hours and hours. And then also they speak a lot about endurance running as being, Avery especially has mentioned this, it's a 10% physical and 90% mental. And that 10% physical is important. You have to be in good shape. You have to train hard. Your body's got to be ready, you know, to run up a mountain for a day or two. But so much of it is mental, keeping your confidence up, not getting anxious, not getting paranoid, not getting uh, deterred. Uh, you, You really go into a kind of frenzied mental state after you've been running for that long and you need something to kind of keep you balanced. And that's why a lot of them will bring edibles or a pen vaporizer with them. Uh, Avery doesn't, but I know a lot of people do in the races, which is taboo and is uh, banned, but it can help calm all that down. And as I said before, get you back into the focus of the act itself. You, You did indeed mention that Avery Collins doesn't use during or even close to competitions um, just by way of background. Former Denver Nugget Kenyon Martin told the Bleacher Report a while back that about 85% of NBA players use cannabis. Major League Baseball, meanwhile, removed cannabis from its list of prohibited substances in 2020. But pot is still a big no-no in golf, for instance. Help us understand like where pro sports is on this question. You know, I often ask myself that same question because it changes quite regularly. And I don't think uh, all these regulatory agencies really know themselves exactly where it's at. But basically, there's this governing body uh, called the World Anti-Doping Agency that Every, every uh, you know, the NBA, the MLB, they all have their own policies, uh, but WADA is kind of the umbrella on this issue that regulates or informs uh, a lot of these agencies on what they should do. Mm-hmm. And they have categorized it as a banned substance. They removed CBD from it a few years ago. They changed the amount of THC that's allowed in the system uh, to be a little bit higher. So if people were using, say, during training and they stopped a few days before competition, you know, and a little bit shows up, they're not going to get in trouble for that. But they have uh, three different criteria for what makes a banned substance. You know, it's performance enhancing, so it'll take you beyond your natural limits, or that it's uh, uh, harmful to the body. And then there's a third criteria, which is very vague. It's called the spirit of the sport. It violates the spirit of the sport. And they admit that that's a pretty nebulous term, but a lot of it comes down to being a bad influence on children. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just and, read this quote from WADA. Using illicit drugs is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. Uh, that is a quote that you include in your book, by the way. And what, what do you make of this statement? I think it harkens back to the sort of old war on drugs rhetoric. It's just remarkably inconsistent with where we're at today on this issue and others as well, because we don't see alcohol as problematic in any way, as a bad influence on children. And the idea that cannabis 
is going to be harmful for your body. It's definitely not taking anyone beyond their natural limits. I think it does have performance enhancing aspects, but not under that criteria. But the idea that it's a bad influence on children, if somebody takes a, a gummy, an edible gummy before they work out or to, you know, bring them into a relaxed state during recovery or for their mental health, you know, and certainly a whole lot of pharmaceuticals aren't banned for their mental health properties uh, is just ridiculous. Or it, it appears ridiculous to the people who live inside legalized states and have seen the effects of it. You know, we saw we heard a whole lot of hysteria from people like Chris Christie about what was going to happen to Colorado when legalization came on and, and that hasn't come to pass. And we have so many states now that are legalized. This just doesn't lead to the kind of degradation of a human or of society that a lot of people would claim. And so I just don't think uh, there's any evidence to show that it would be a bad influence on children. Now, you invoked alcohol a bit earlier. And if people are uncomfortable with the rapprochement between exercise and cannabis, you encourage them to think about the ties between sports and alcohol. The Rockies, for instance, play at, name it. Coors Field. Coors Field. Uh, You, Josiah, were offered a beer after a race. Share just a few thoughts about that. Well, yeah, it certainly wasn't just the one time that I was offered a beer at the race. Uh, you know, these races are often sponsored by brewers, and some of them will start or finish at a brewery, and they'll give you drink tickets at the end of the race. And it's considered the way to celebrate the finishing of the race, the completion of it. You you want a cold beer, and I don't have any problem with that, but it seems a little inconsistent with this idea that cannabis sets a bad influence for children. Given the federal prohibition on marijuana, there's simply a dearth of cannabis research. And Angela Bryan, uh, who we talked about earlier from CU Boulder, you know, she has to have like all these carve outs where she does this research, how she does this research using a bus off campus. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes a lot of cannabis research uh, suspect going back, you know, pre-legalization, because so much of it, or all of it, was only allowed to use cannabis grown at the University of Mississippi, uh, which is overseen by the DEA. And they can only grow very low THC, no CBD cannabis that is grown poorly, freeze-dried, ground up with the stems and seeds in it, shipped across the country, rehydrated, and given to people to smoke. And people, especially in Colorado, you know, even before legalization, when we had medical or just anything coming out of the Emerald Triangle in California, would look at this and think, well, this is just horrible. This is garbage. I'm not going to put this in my body. Well, that's going to influence your research dramatically. You know, if the only research we had on alcohol was on poorly manufactured moonshine, we would think like, well, that's not consistent with people who are drinking wine or beer at the bar every night. And so now we have, we're getting more research with higher quality cannabis, but you're right. They couldn't use it on the campus because it's still federally illegal. Uh, The university could lose a lot of their federal funding if they were to bring an illicit substance onto the campus, uh, allow people to use it. It's actually easier to use cocaine or crack in studies than it is cannabis. Uh, Carl Hart's done some amazing studies uh, with cocaine, but that's a a Schedule II substance, so it's not as prohibited. But huh. to participate in Angela Bryan's study, I had to 
go in this van, get my blood drawn, go into someone's house, a friend's house, and consume some cannabis, a type of cannabis that they had picked out for me, but I had to go purchase myself, consume it, go back in the van, get blood work taken, and then speed me off to the university where I would run on a treadmill, you know, hopefully before my cannabis high deteriorates in any way, and then conduct their study there. So it's a very elaborate, uh, I don't think it necessarily impacted the quality of the research because it was such a short distance to the university, but still a strange legalistic pageantry that we all had to go through in order to get the study done. And a lot of uh, universities or a lot of researchers looking at that would think, I'm not even going to deal with that minefield of you know, legalistic uh, jargon, and I'm just going to not research this topic. This is not a how-to interview, but at the end of your book, you have a how-to chapter uh, in terms of training, exercising with cannabis. But you say that you composed that chapter reluctantly. Uh, I'm curious why you were reluctant to do a how-to Well, I grew up in the world of evangelical Christianity, where there's a whole lot of how-to with pretty much any aspect of life. And I really didn't want to approach this like the Tim Ferriss uh, five-hour work week of, you know, follow me into the sunset, you know, come to my conferences and change your life. I really (laughs) wanted to report on the things that were exciting for me about using cannabis and exercise. And then also all of these people who were using it and the science that was coming out around it, there was just so much fun to dig into. And my editor wanted a how-to chapter, and I pushed against that because I just didn't want to be any kind of stoned athlete guru. But when I thought about it and thought about my journey with cannabis and so many other people's, I realized that I need to take on some responsibility for this book, for anyone who's just going to think, okay, if I take a whole bunch of edibles, I'm suddenly going to be able to run a marathon after not running a single mile in my life. That is not true. And it's a dangerous idea for people to get in their heads. And then there are other things like don't mix it with alcohol. You know, so many people who have bad experiences with cannabis do it at parties when they've had a whole lot of alcohol and then someone hands them a joint and they get dizzy, they get the spins, they get anxious and paranoid, and maybe they throw up and they think, well, that's cannabis. I don't want to do that ever again. Well, that's a terrible way to introduce yourself to cannabis. So yeah, it's something that when I think back on my experiences, there was a whole lot that I would have benefited from. And we are mindful, of course, of the age restrictions around cannabis as well in Colorado. Absolutely. Josiah, when you were a kid, you equated athletes with the meathead bullies who taunted you. And that experience really colored your view of team sports and of competition. I have to say, I identified a lot with this aspect of the book. Um, I didn't feel terribly good at sports. I was called a sissy. uh, And I think it really did shape my perception of movement and exercise. But here with this project for the Book Runners High, you're spending a lot of time with professional athletes and kind of weekend warriors. How was it to expose yourself to that which had traumatized you as a kid? It wasn't fun at first. Uh, I have been covering a variety of subjects as a freelance journalist for a long time. Science, the arts, politics, crime, but never stepped anywhere close to sports uh, for that reason. 
And when I was a kid, yeah, I, I, I was a lot like Bobby Hill from King of the Hill. I was just like very strange and very soft and very weak and couldn't really participate in anything and got teased mercilessly for that and was bullied. And it was very traumatizing and something that stayed with me and colored my view of sports and physical activity. And I think that's a not uncommon story, as, as you mentioned about yourself. But getting into that world, spending time with athletes, getting over the uh, image I had of anyone who exercised or anyone who's into sports or uh, was into competition, that really started to shift uh, the more they were humanized in my eyes and they weren't mean, they, they weren't cruel, they weren't bullying, they weren't, um, they weren't approaching competition with that toxic mindset of, I need to destroy my competitor. Quite often, there was a kind of camaraderie between them, a camaraderie within competition, and people were uh, challenged to be better in that competition. And I could certainly relate to that. I've seen that in the arts for years and years. But also, when looking at the stereotypes that people carried about cannabis users, that they're lazy, that they're degenerates, uh, that they're not ambitious, that they're unreliable, and knowing how untrue those stereotypes were, I had to take a second look at my stereotypes about athletes, you know, that mm. they're meatheads, that they're bullies, that they're homophobic, uh, that they're just cruel human beings. Uh, and, you know, realize like, okay, if I'm going to challenge this one stereotype about cannabis users, I really need to challenge my own stereotypes about people into athletics. And that happened organically just through spending time with these people and realizing they're really good, kind, gentle people who have no interest in bullying anyone. And there was actually something about competition that really appealed to me. Josiah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This was delightful. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Politico, and Esquire. His new book is Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that keeps up the pace. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.